This Week in Startups is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank, who, in partnership with Founders Pledge, has formed the COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund. This fund will deliver resources directly to organizations that can help make the most immediate impact in the fight against COVID-19. Learn more at svb.com impact. Twilio runs an amazing program for startups that includes a $500 getting started credit, access to webinars made exclusive for startups, and full support via their Twilio startups team. Sign up now at twiliostartups.com slash twist and Mint Mobile. Stop paying for unlimited data that you never use. Cut your wireless bill down to just $15 a month and get a plan shipped to your door for free at mintmobile.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. We're recording this episode at the end of May. On Bryant Street, somewhere in the Soma District of San Francisco, in 2020. If you're looking back on this as a historical document, 20 years from now, or 40 years from now, or 100 years from now, yeah, we're in the middle of the pandemic, and it's confusing. It was scary. Now it's frustrating. Nobody can make heads or tails of what's going on. Nobody believes the statistics. The statistics are either being pumped up or. They're being suppressed, depending on who you talk to, depending on the region of the world. But the good news is it feels like we're learning a lot about this virus. And hopefully, maybe, we come out of this with some stronger themes about how we should run our government, our society, our businesses, and our lives. And on the pod to talk about this is an old friend and just a great investor and a, and, a, and a great human being. Gary Tan is with us again. He's been on the pod a couple of times. Uh, welcome back to the pod, Gary. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. How are you holding up on a very personal basis? How is your family? How are you psychologically? How do you feel emotionally? Let's, let's, let's chop it up. Oh, man. Honestly, I think the first few weeks of not having childcare was brutal. I think a lot of the parents are nodding their heads as they hear me yeah, say this. Think. It's been pretty, really hard. Yeah. It's been pretty hard. Uh, but even after three or four weeks, I feel like we've really settled into this really nice groove. Um, I think I've spent way more time with them, um, gotten to know my two little ones. It's actually my um, my littlest one's first birthday today. Oh my so, God, amazing. So we're having a Zoom birthday party and it's pretty yeah. great. So. It's great that everybody's healthy. And yes, this crazy, the kids are home three months before the end of the school year and they're going to have a six month summer certainly is unexpected. And it's it's really having an impact on business when you think about it. You and I are probably lucky enough that you know, being in the business of raising funds that get deployed over three or four years and management fees and multiple funds, we're not looking at the world going, oh my God, how do I make rent? How do I put food on the table? But there is the second order of how do I take care of my kids if I cannot send them to school and I cannot have, I can't, it's not like you can hire a tutor and suddenly have them coming to your house. I don't think in a shelter in place yeah. pandemic. I don't know if you're allowed to do that. I don't even, the rules are so confusing. I guess when you look at your, the businesses in your portfolio, what are they going through? You know, without mentioning specific names, 
what are the type of conversations you're having with founders right now around, around you know, month three of this shelter in place order and the pandemic? Yeah, the big question is always, well, when is the recovery actually going to happen? There's clearly three types of startups that are um, being affected. One is um, the ones that are deeply affected, um, things that touch travel. Um, and a lot of that is about surviving. Like, let's get to the other side um, because there is a there there on the other side. But, you know, only if we have enough capital um, still in the, in the tank at the end of it and so when the recovery happens matters a lot to that category one, for sure. And when you're looking at category one of, okay, revenue has now gone to zero, you expect that revenue might start again in Q4, maybe in Q3 there'll be signs of life, but maybe not back to normal in a year or two, I would guess. And that's one where founders who are really great, they find a way. Um, so retooling, finding another way, finding new revenue streams. Um, you know, Zeus is a good example where because they had software at the core of what they're doing around, um, you know, housing, uh, and they were long, longer term than really, really short term, um, they were able to keep their uh, occupancy really high. They you know, are back up to 70% um, from a high of like sort of 85, 90 uh, normally. So there are ways to get around. You do need to be really, really aware. Okay, so that's group one. All right, so Zeus Living, that seems to exist maybe in the second bucket you were about to get to, which is they didn't go down to zero, but they got impacted pretty heavily, but oh, yeah. they were creative and they rebounded. Zeus Living, for people who don't know, I think is like two to six month stays as opposed yeah, to two to three days nights. And up. 30, 30 days, days and up. Yeah. Got it. Um, and that's one of your investments that initialized. So in that second category, uh, unpack the second and third categories of startups that you're dealing with. Well, that second category, I actually think um, could have grown probably 3x to 5x. I mean, Zeus was growing 4.5x year on year for, I think, three or four years running. And um, yeah, they're actually only going to grow 2x this year. <laughs> so right. even in the middle only of doubling. all this <laughs> Only doubling. Uh, and then that's sort of what we're seeing in that sort of second category broadly, that um, you can still grow, but you're going to grow a little bit slower. And I think broadly for that category, how do you get to actually 24 months of runway? Um, yeah. I was talking with a later stage investor recently, and they were sort of expressing some concern over all of our portfolios right now, because you know if the advice three months ago was 18 months of runway, then we're at 15 now. And when we come out, you're going to be at three yeah. or two. And, or if it doesn't happen in 15 months, you know, then what do you do? And um, right. I think that we are still going to have a lot of bloodletting in our industry um, in the next 15 months. And it's something that basically all of us should be hyper aware of. Yeah, and when you think about it, somebody brought this up on the program, I forgot who, uh, Nick might remember, uh, one of the producers might remember and put it in there, but they were saying, hey, you know, people might be investing now, but starting in this first quarter of next year or second quarter, now that they've done the triage on the most acute cases, like that category one, you know, we might get into Q1 or Q2 and people are saying, you know what, all my dry powder in my portfolio has to go to save my portfolio breakout companies and I'm not making new investments and I'm not even looking at other funds investments to try to help save their falling knives. And then that becomes the, what we would, I guess, you know, sort of call a contagion where everybody just circles the wagon and says, you know what, I'm going to just pick my 
five best companies, my 10 best companies, and I'm just going to go all in on them. You see that as having uh, any validity? Yeah, I think that that's uh, on the horizon. And the other thing that I think you're going to see is VCs club together a lot more. Um, the past sort of five years or so has been a lot of knives out for each other at some level because yeah. people feel like they don't need a lot of um, dry powder around the table. And times exactly like this are when uh, new alliances are formed fundamentally. So we're going to see a lot more of that. It's going to matter um, who your VC's friends are. Uh, and previously it did not exist because people had enough dry powder or the market was just so frothy. Flood, so frothy and flooded with capital. You didn't have to make friends with downstream investors to build alliances. Now what you're saying is, hey, a seed fund like mine or a, a, a initialized best described as a series A or seed or both. Still seed. Still seed. Um, so seed Series funds, A is, yeah. we're pre-product market fit. So yeah. there are a lot of great Series A firms that we really like, but we think seed is um, where we do our best work. Yeah, same. Why is it that seed is so attractive to you? What's your, why do you think it, you do your best work there? What do you love about it? Because you could actually have your choice, let's face it, right? You could, you could say we're a Series A firm, you could be a seed firm. I think you have a ton of amazing options at, um, Series A and at Seed, what you really need is almost a different set of expertise. You need people to help you with go-to-market, uh, PR, marketing, sales, um, you know, even product design engineering. You know, how do you actually build your first teams? Like that was one of the things I worked with Brian Armstrong at Coinbase on very early on after he graduated from Y Combinator was how do I build my first engineering team? And uh, that's the stuff that I really enjoy. <laughs> That's what I know I'm good at. Yeah, as opposed to what you might delude yourself into thinking you're good at because the market's been up. When you're, are you looking at new investments? And yeah. have you slowed that down, sped it up, or tried to keep it the same given the fact that your attention is naturally going to be joined to the portfolio companies who are trying to deal with the pandemic? Yeah, we've, we've slowed down a little bit. The good thing is the way Initialized runs, um, Alexis is actually remote. He lives in Florida right now. And so we've been able to build the whole firm around being able to move very quickly um, over Zoom. So, you know, I, now Alexis's experience working with companies, that's uh, my experience too. We're all on the same level playing field now. And um, so we've been exercising those muscles for a few years now. So COVID-19 actually hasn't changed um, how we work. Have you uh, but invested we do have to in slow it? down yeah. because we have to spend a lot more time with those portfolio companies. And have you had companies that are shutting down because of this or just, you know, shuttering, being put on ice? And, and how's that going? Luckily, we've been able to get more uh, capital into the companies. And that's where having good friends and good allies helps a ton. Um, so that but that's been a very high, uh, a, a very large, high priority item on my calendar these days is make sure you know we are working for our portfolio. What does it look like for you to call another investor and say, hey, I got this great company. Yeah, they're struggling because of COVID-19, but the founder is amazing. How do, you, how do you have that phone call with a downstream investor? What, what does that phone call sound like? Uh, people probably haven't heard that phone call, obviously. Well, the question is always, what's Initialized doing? And are they putting more money in? And so as long as we put our money where our mouth is, um, I think that it's pretty clear uh, where we stand. What is the expectation from those downstream investors that you'll keep going pro rata, you'll put in a 250K check? What do they expect to see to know that you're serious? 
yeah, pro rata uh, is usually sort of what people are looking for. And then the tricky thing is, and I think a lot of fund managers right now um, will run into this, you know, you don't have infinite reserves in those older funds. Um, so for the new vintages for us, we've explicitly put aside half of our initial check for um, for every single one of our companies. Um, I've heard that other firms like Benchmark do the same thing. Uh, certainly First Round came out recently um, publishing how they deal with reserves for outside leads. So that type of clarity is just what you really need. I think it's table stakes for a lot of people. And I think it's something that people should ask their lead investors at, you know, seed and series A, you know, how, you know, get something, um, maybe not in writing, but have that conversation with your lead when you sign that term sheet or before you sign that term sheet, uh, to have an understanding for what's the criteria, how do I get my follow on and what do you usually reserve? All right, when it's we, a question that founders don't really ask. When we get back from this, I want to know what is initialized uh, policy on when to follow on and when to uh, hold them and just stay pat with what your investment is and not put additional capital in. When we get back on This Week in Startups. As we navigate unprecedented times, Silicon Valley Bank believes that collective action is the best way to overcome the challenges we're all up against. This is why Silicon Valley Bank, in partnership with Founders Pledge, has formed the COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund. The fund will deliver resources directly to organizations around the world that can help make the most immediate impact in the fight against COVID-19. Silicon Valley Bank has made an initial $1 million investment to fund this critical work, and it invites you to join them in helping those in need. Silicon Valley Bank continues to offer solutions that support small businesses and the innovation economy. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has supported countless innovators with a passion for solving the world's biggest problems, and today remains committed to helping its clients and employees and our communities manage through these uncertain times. To learn more about the Silicon Valley Bank COVID-19 Global Impact and Innovation Fund, visit svb.com slash impact. All right, Gary Tan's on the pod. I've known him for, God, 15 years or something. I knew him when he was started a company called Posterous, which allowed you to email a secret email address and then have it post automatically to your Instagram, Twitter, WordPress blog, live journal, anything. It was a brilliant piece of software. I miss it. I miss it. <laughs> you know, somebody emailed me and was like, I... Uh, I heard you talking about posters. I made a new posters. Here's how it works. And they literally have copied posters. I got yeah, yeah. Flipso. Flipso.com. Flipso. Is that it? Yeah. So I you post so. there and then it just goes everywhere. Yeah. Well, I made one too. It's called Post Haven. Ah. So I'm I'm a VC that's also a bootstrapper. So does it actually <laughs> what does it do? It posts to all services like yeah. Buffer does or whatever? Uh we stopped doing the auto post and now we're just saying we're gonna keep your website online forever. I wrote it into my will, actually. So there will be a foundation that's spun up if I die. And oh. um, you know, we're gonna the whole idea here is I mean, we were just talking about data and ultimately the cost of storing data will come basically down to zero. And for now, there's sort of this in-between in time where we still have to pay, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for terabytes. Yeah. And that's going to go to zero. So really what we need to do is take the data that you really care about now and sort of time warp it to the time when it costs nothing to store. And it's within, you know, hopefully our lifetimes, you know. I think it's a decade out. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at how it's going, as long as you don't keep upgrading, like if we upgraded the studio cameras to 4K, those get ginormous in terms oh, yeah. of size. And they're completely unnecessary, I guess. I mean, people might look at it, me clip this and say like, yeah, just like HD was unnecessary. But uh, we were talking before about our struggles with 
network attached storage and <laughs> the you know the best hack that i've ever seen nerds mm. nerds exactly <laughs> the best hack i've ever seen is people upload videos to youtube and make them unlisted and now mm -hmm. you've got a backup for all time for free oh yeah i do that yeah, yeah. as long as google doesn't shut down your account you're good and right. they might randomly do that <laughs> which was another startup backupify that i had invested in and what backupify oh, yeah. was doing is they would authenticate with your gmail and then copy your uh gmail file out every night at midnight so if your Gmail got hacked, like my friend Scott Heiferman from Meetup got his like uh, personal Gmail hacked and the hacker deleted all the email. Yeah. And he lost a decade's worth of his email, which is, it's almost like every photo you ever took being burned. You just lose this archive of your life. And I also wonder like, are these archives worth anything? We spent all this time archiving in no time pulling up the photos in the archive, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah Seems yeah. like that's the going to be the big opportunity. I'm looking for a service. I guess Google does this to a certain extent with Google Photos where they surface stuff. I almost wish there was a paid service where somebody would look through my photos for me, make a photo book every year for me based on my archives and just do it as like some sort of oh, yeah. like service where you just went back 10 years ago and said, here's a, here's a photo for you of your daughters and, and here's their oh, life yeah. and just like almost like a hiring, like a, what does the president have? The president has like a presidential photographer. Yeah. Like imagine you had a concierge. Apple's pretty good at this. I mean, yeah. Google's pretty good at this too, but I uh, Surfacing really it. like the Apple one. Yeah, they give you like, here's your On day. On Apple TV, yeah. Yeah. Here's your day. Yeah, here's your day. Really good. Yeah, it's pretty neat. But yeah, I, I think that we have to think about um, our data as something that needs to be sort of cryogenically frozen so that it can reach the uh, singularity. And for data, there is a singularity, which is the, 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 the time at which storing all data becomes basically free. Right. And an entire lifetime worth of data is less than a cup of coffee. Yeah. Or something like that. Like, you know, imagine, imagine that situation where all your entire life's data would cost less than $10 to store. You know, I thought about all of this because I actually lost um, thousands of photos and all of my followers on Flickr uh, when I started Posterous. So I got banned. Um, I started Posterous. I thought the thousands of followers were my followers. So I actually started messaging them saying, hey, I started this service that works with Flickr to post your photos by email. Would you wow. like to try it? And um, they deleted my account and <gasps> all of my photos and I had no backups. Was this before or after they were bought by Yahoo? Uh, this was before. So you so were doing were a growth hack. Yeah. And they, somebody said like, hey, is this person spamming me or whatever? And they basically put you into a spam folder. Yeah. Oh, that's so sharp death. elbow. It, it was, was death. You know, first, first offense was death. And so from then on, all the things that I ever did had a unbanned button because, right. and this was one of the first brushes with uh, the fact that software is sort of the new government. And what that means is we have to recreate all of the systems that work in society. You need a court system. We were just talking about Google. Google will ban YouTube accounts left and right. And unless you make a big stink in social media, you lose it forever. I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to this who are nodding their heads because they lost their account for some sort of incidental or even maybe accidental flagging. And there's no appeal um, process. And there's no appeal. Like there's no one listening, right? Right. And that's a problem. It is. And it's the the problem with being able to buy into any of these platforms and why people don't trust them. And the, I think the fundamental nature of email or RSS feeds was so important and such a loss to the industry that Facebook and Twitter, you know, just basically said, you know what, we're never going to support RSS. I think Twitter removed it. 
I'm not certain of that. Somebody will fact check me, but I know they deprecated it at least. And now you see this with Spotify saying, hey, we're going to buy Joe Rogan's podcast. It's going to still yeah. be free. But what happens to Joe Rogan's RSS feed, right? What are your thoughts on the Joe Rogan deal in relation to this bigger, broader topic of open standards? It's the most interesting take on Twitter that I've been reading is people think that he's going to regret it the way uh, the Instagram founders regretted selling for just a billion, um, which is really interesting. And I think that that speaks to something that people aren't really paying attention to, which is um, the power of the influencer. Like when I am talking with someone on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, um, what I realize now is when they watch me every single week, I'm actually uh, a character in their life. You're and a friend. Yeah. Yeah. They're my friend. And the reality is they can actually DM me on Instagram. I started this new thing where uh, any founder can actually DM me and I will respond. I can't guarantee that I will respond forever because I just can't. Yeah, good luck with hand, that one. I tried that about 10 years ago. And What was that like? Well, <laughs> Pros you know, and cons. How do you the, make it work? Here's the thing. You know, making yourself accessible is a great way to have great deal flow, right? And mm -hmm. then at a certain point, you reach a breaking point where you cannot keep up with the inflow. And then- Yeah, it's overwhelming. You, you, it's overwhelming. And then you risk either losing your mind ignoring your existing portfolio or being the guy who doesn't respond. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, I think people are genuinely uh, overall understanding of a super router, which you may not be yet, but you're on your way to, you're kind of like probably in the early innings of that. You have seven or thousand followers I saw on your, on your YouTube account, which I watched before the show, you know, that will, you'll see in a year, it'll be 70,000 and then it'll be 150,000. That's kind of how it goes. You're going to add a thousand a month or something. I would guess you're adding ballpark. Uh, I'm growing 30 ish percent a month, but that can't hold. So we'll see. Well, you know, it's, I think it will actually, cause all you have to do is do two videos a week. Right. Or yeah. sometimes you'll have a breakout video where you didn't expect it. Right. Like some breakout episode for me, it was like the Chris Saka episodes before anybody knew who Chris Saka Great episode. was. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. And it was like a two parter. And then a lot of people didn't know who Chris Saka was before that. He was kind of underground, right? Like you may know him in San Francisco, but not publicly. He does three hours on the podcast. We split into two episodes. And then as much as it made Chris famous, it made me famous because people were like, oh, who's that guy interviewing him? He's got some good questions. And then when Travis was on, all that kind of stuff, so you get these like unexpected moments. With Spotify, the reason I love what Spotify is doing on a business basis is um, they have that public market capital where they can buy stuff or, you know, in the case, of, it's a licensing deal. So they're buying him essentially for three years or five years. I don't think the term is public yet, or I haven't read a term. So let's just say it's for five years. It's $100 million, $20 million a year. That's probably on top of the $30 million he's making now. So it's perfect for Joe Rogan. He gets an extra 10 or $20 million a year. It's perfect for Spotify. They get all those users who come, and some number of them are going to go buy subscriptions to Spotify. So if they Spotify is, what, 10 bucks a month? So $100 a year, maybe? Yeah. They need only get a million more subscribers. I'm going to argue Joe Rogan brings a couple of hundred thousand subscribers. What's great about it for everybody else is I think Joe Rogan goes from being the number one podcast on iTunes and other platforms. And because he's not updating that feed or he's putting short clips on it, I think it's going to go down. So that gives somebody else the chance to be number one. Then maybe yeah. Ben Shapiro becomes number one or somebody else becomes number one. Then they get bought out. So it keeps the top 100 lists on those other platforms with gives everybody a chance to move up one rank basically yeah and the person on top gets paid 
I'm excited about all this new content. And I actually am trying, my side goal with my YouTube channel is I'd actually like uh, a thousand other people to also start and then we can all do collabs together. And then that's how we truly hack the YouTube algorithm together. Yeah, I'll do a collab. Well, this is sort of a collab. This is a collab. <laughs> well, I mean, it would only be a collab if- I need you to come on my YouTube channel and then- Or I don't think that's it. No, what we have to do is we have to come up with a concept for a piece of content all right. that would fit both our formats. So yes. if you took this episode and then you put some stock footage in it and a drone, and then you and I did something in your format with a blurred background for me, and it'd be about you coming on my podcast, that's a crossover, I think. Yeah, totally. So you permission granted if you wanted to chop this up in any way. I'm down. Make it into your collab. That uh, sounds great. Collab. Is that how you pronounce it, Nick? Collab. 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 Um, yeah, it's going to be great for po for podcasting, I think. I had a question before we went to break, and I forgot what I asked you. you oh, we were talking about um, follow-ons. Follow-ons, yes. So you typical typical check size for you is a 500K, a million? What do you put into a company? Uh, a typically? million to five million, which is a pretty wide range now, I realize. That's pretty wide range, yeah. So let's just put it at two million. Pretty product market fit, yeah. Two, two and a half, that's about right. Okay, so we'll say two million for ease of math. What would you then say to the founder of, hey, here's what you can expect from initialized when you do your Series A? Yeah. Off the bat, we're going to set aside 1.25 million. 1.25 right? million. That's right. And then uh, anything beyond that, we might be able to do more. Um, it just depends, obviously. And then, you know, the other thing that we try and do is, look, you're going to get punched in the face. That's how startups go. You know, we think we have product market fit. We think we're on the right direction. And then it takes longer, right? Mm. We don't get our three X a year growth. Something goes wrong. We're going to need, you know, another eighteen months, another two years to figure it out. Well, that's where the one point two five also comes into play because if we still believe, you still believe, we're gung ho. Like that's the lead of a seed extension, right? And yeah. that's actually turned into product market fit for several of our companies. Um, you know, I know a lot of people will say no seed extensions, but if we have deep belief, that's People are, these are like 10 year overnight successes, right? right. <laughs> it just takes so long for a startup to actually work. And it's so short sighted for investors to just um, abandon founders who sometimes it's the first time they've ever managed people. Sometimes it's the first time they've ever shipped a product. Um, we really see people grow over the course of five or, you know, I've been doing investing for, you know, I'm still a noob, you know, <laughs> I, how I've many years have you been investing? Professionally for eight years. Eight years, yeah. Me too. I'm um, doing it for like, uh, just a couple more years than you, maybe 11, 10 or 11, I guess. So I'm learning stuff every single day, but... Um, when we get back for this quick break, I want you to tell me things that you did terribly in the first couple of years that you've now fixed in your game, the leaks in your game okay. as an investor that you've really worked on fixing and why when we get back on this video service. All right, I'm really excited to welcome Twilio back to being a partner here at This Week in Startups. If you don't know them, they're obviously the cloud communication platform that's used by people like Uber or Airbnb, Shopify. I use it at Inside. And they're joining with us here at This Week in Startups to bring their 
Twilio and SendGrid startup programs to our listeners. Twilio provides you the building blocks for messaging, voice, and video in your web and mobile applications. They are rooted in startup culture, and they are here to help you on your journey. In fact, Twilio's first product roadmap was written on the back of a pizza box back in 2007. And I've had Jeff on the podcast a couple of times. I've had the founder and the CEO of SendGrid on the podcast a couple of times. You've seen them on here. So if you want to engage and delight your users while scaling globally, all from one API-powered platform, from SMS to voice. You can even go into WhatsApp now. I didn't know that, actually. That's pretty cool. Um, and, of course, you can do email now that they've acquired SendGrid. Uh, you're going to want to use Twilio. I use it. It works great for me at Inside. We do instant alerts and updates. So if you get inside.com slash business, we'll send the top two or three stories to our users by SMS. And now that's becoming one of our main features to get people to pay. And this is where it gets great. And I'm really excited to, to have Twilio make this offer to you, our listeners here at This Week in Startups. They have an amazing startup program. You know what? Everybody's got a startup program, but you're not going to believe this. They're going to give you $500. They're going to give you 500 500 bucks in credits right now. Plus, you can get access to webinars made exclusively for startups and the full support of the Twilio Startups team. They're also going to give you $3,000 in Send Grid credits. This is unbelievable. I really am thankful for Twilio for doing this. Go to twiliostartups.com slash twist. Twilio, T-W-I-L-I-O, startups.com slash twist. You have to go there and grab these credits. It's $3,500 waiting there for your startup. And they're doing this because they love the podcast and they want to support it. And they want to support startups because they're big fans of startups. And they're big fans of This Week in Startups, uh, which I appreciate. So get the $3,500 now. Twilio, startups.com slash twist. All right, everybody. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. I hope you and your family are safe. And uh, we're coming out of the pandemic now here in San Francisco. We've been very lucky that people wear masks and have really respected the shelter-in-place um, rules. And you feel safe going back to work? you feel safe going outside, Gary? How do you feel now as a parent, as a founder, et cetera, about yeah. us going back to work? How do you feel? I mean, we're going to stay... Whatever Facebook does for their office, we're going to do. And the reality is uh, we're sort of prepared to stay uh, working from home through maybe all of 2021, actually. That's sort of the conversation Whoa. we're happening, having this morning. Wow. Just because we need a vaccine. And, you know, I was just talking with Alexis about this this morning. Um, the amazing thing about America is that we are free. Right. Like, God bless America. Honestly, I am like so proud to be an American. I'm proud to you know be in a place that has freedom. Uh, but, you know, the flip side of that is, shoot, how are we going to control a pandemic? And we're going to have another spike. And it's pretty clear that there will be another spike that the hope is since young people seem to die very infrequently from this and with masks and some basic social distancing, I actually believe, and listen, I'm no expert here, but it does seem like the herd immunity or resiliency might be a better term, where, you know, if 25% of New Yorkers have it, and you run into three, we all know coefficients, like, at a certain point, if 25% of people have already installed the Uber app or the Coinbase app or Facebook, you can't get them as new users, so it slows down, right? Yeah. And so it does feel like that's happening as well, where, not out here, but in New York, so I'm wondering in New York, if people start going back, you know, we might have gotten this completely wrong. We should have sheltered in place yeah. anybody at risk 
And then I'm going to sound like a Trumpian here, but it might actually be just a fact that that's the argument on Twitter, right? People are drawing very strong lines around so stupid, you know, closed versus not. It, why is it a why do you think it's become a political issue when it's just a matter of science and technique? Like as founders and as investors, we look at this. I assume you look at this this way as well. Like, well, what's the experiment we can run here? Like we ran the experiment in New York where people have a subway that didn't work out so well. We ran the experience of total shutdown in San Francisco. That didn't work well for the economy, but sure did work for people not dying. Like, how do you look at the experiment? Yeah. I think we just have an incredible amount of um, anger, frustration, and rightly so, because, you know, we are here and we're privileged. We have incredible privilege to be able to do our jobs without really an effect. We can do, be as effective as knowledge workers um, as we were before. But a lot of people can't, and a lot of people aren't, and a lot of people don't have jobs. So I really do feel that level of pain out there. Yeah. Um, and then the difficulty is it's very natural for humans to take that frustration and put it into, they have to sublimate it into other things, whether it's shouting at each other in, you know, I'm sure you've seen videos Park of people video shouting today. at each other, right? Yeah. Um, it's tough. I mean, if everyone could just take a breath and realize, hey, we're all human beings. We're sort of heroes of our own story, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> we have to make space for each other as heroes here. Um, and yeah. I think it goes, to po- it goes to politics. It goes to people freaking out about masks um, or not wearing masks, refusing to wear masks. Sort of both sides just get so dug in. It's, and, and it's, it's such a, a simple time. solution. Like a, the police officers who are like dragging people to the ground and jumping on their backs because they're not wearing a mask. You could simply hand a person a mask and I've said it on the podcast 10 times, and say, oh, I'm sorry, you forgot your masks? Here's a complimentary one. I'd hate to have to give you a $500 ticket for not putting this on. Right. The same way a cop pulls you over and is like, hey, did you know you were going 75 and a 60, 55? Like, I'd hate to give you a ticket. You should I give you a warning this time? And like, kind of works, right? Like, you, you get pulled over by the cops and they let you go. Yeah. You probably don't speed, you know, for six months yeah. uh, or six weeks or whatever it happens to be. And it's I just... mean, you can do that in South Korea because there's societal cohesion. And you can do that in Sweden because there's societal cohesion. But they're also um, basically societies made up of people who are very similar to each other. Right. And we are a very diverse society. So that's why it's so much harder. Um, right. And I think that that's, you know, part and parcel with the diversity. The diversity is a strength. Because we get all these different viewpoints. We have this very rich fabric in the country of 50 different states. But boy, is it difficult to get everybody on the same page, especially when the president is, you know, kind of the opposite of Bush or Obama, who were trying to bring everybody to the center and say, hey, Clinton as well would fall into this. Hey, let's all, we're all in this together. We're going to solve 9-11 together. We're going to solve the Great Recession together. And now it feels like we're, you know, not to make this political, but I don't think Trump wants to make, you know, everybody solve this together, nor do I think the left wants to solve it together. They seem to want to, you know, blame Trump for it and, you know, shelter in place indefinitely. And your point about how privileged we are to work as knowledge workers and then tell people whose businesses are about to go to business, they can't go to their pizzeria. They can't go to their dry cleaner. They have to shelter in place. That's just ridiculous, right? Like, especially if it's a young person, if a young person wants to take the risk and go out, I don't see how we should be able to stop them. I mean, unless the ICUs were overwhelmed, which does make total sense. 
Yeah, I think that's how we think about it. If we're knowledge workers and we can be as good as we were before, then we probably should stay in simply because that R naught becomes some R naught that an essential worker or someone else who has a business that has to happen physically, they can't do the same business. Like they can go and do their business. Right. right? And if I open my doors and I start taking pitches in person, that's contributing to like the, spread. the commons problem, yeah. right? This is a, a problem of the commons. Right. And, you know, I don't want to be a part of the tragedy of the commons. Right. So if you can stay home and you go to less Warriors basketball games, I know the Warriors need to make money too and there are people who work there too. But, you know, if you can take yourself out of the, you know, virality of this, yeah, that, that helps everybody. It makes total sense. Let's go back to the original question, which I teased, which was, you know, you're in year eight now. You guys are, I think, are on your third fund, maybe. Yeah. Uh, what What have you learned about yourself as an investor, your own blind spots, things you say, hey, you know, I could get better at this. I need to be better at that. Well, you know, I've always been known as a super, super nice guy. And I'm <laughs> happy with that. You know, I, I want to do business that way. Um, but we've definitely had to learn the hard way that uh, percentage ownership matters a lot, actually. Mm. And, you know, you know what? We're worth it, actually. Right. <laughs> like, we're going to go to bat. So um, there's that. That's probably the number one thing that I had to learn going from, um, you know, writing small angel checks to growing up as an institutional fund. Um, look, like, we're going to do a lot. And, you know, the resources that my LPs have given me allow me to hire great people on, you know, I can hire Kim Mai Cutler, who yeah. used to work at TechCrunch, and she is amazing at policy. Like she's, she, she's the one who told me that COVID was going to hit in February, you right. know, her in Bology, right? Yeah. And so, you know, there are people on my team who, um, they're worth it. We're going to go to bat. But, you know, as a result, we actually need to be partners uh, on the cap table because that's how we actually provide that value back to our LPs. So you can't be a 2% owner. You got to be a 10% owner or a yep. 20% owner. What do you, what yeah, do you 10 think? 10 to 15. 10 to 15. That's exactly what I'm going for. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think you, you, we all learn the same lesson, which is, you know, you and I have many billion dollar companies. I that think. we put 25 or 50K into and yeah, it's exactly. not meaningful. Right. Exactly. I mean, it is, but then it isn't, right? It I mean, is for an individual. It is not for an LP. Exactly. Exactly. And you need to get to, I mean, we have one that's a unicorn that we have substantial ownership in, which would be Calm, which we own five or 6% of. It's a great one. Which is a great one. And it's just, you know, but, you know, it would have been nice to own 15% of that one. But now we're correcting that with FitBods, DZ, other things. We're trying to get to that 10, 15% ownership. And that seems to be also sustainable. You can maintain that percentage if they raise another 10 million. Well, you need only be a million of that or 1.5 million of that round. So in terms of being a nice guy, getting run over and getting your allocation crammed down because other VCs came in swinging their elbows or later round saying, you have to give up your pro rata. What do you say and have people tried to take your pro rata away from you? And what have you done? When that good happens. question. <laughs> you can tell me the truth. Tell it raw. I'll tell it raw too. You just have to say the name of the person who's so offensive that they tried to take it away. But this is a legit issue for guys like us, I think. I think the good thing is being a brand means that, hey, this isn't, people can be long-term greedy this way. Yep. So you know that, you know, we're going to be around this year, next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, like, uh, and we have long memories. Right. So. So, but you've had so people nice, try to take your pro rata, correct? Yeah. 
That's right. How often does that happen? In in one of in, out of ten deals, how often do you get asked as a seed stage investor to give up your pro rata? You know what's interesting is uh, most of the time it's actually uh, YC taking their programmatic pro rata, and they've actually stepped that back. So um, oh. that's actually worked out really well. Um, Explain I think that that's the right move. They were taking they were trying to maintain their seven percent indefinitely. That's right. Which seems reasonable. It's not yeah. reasonable. It is. Um, but the interesting thing was, uh, I actually raised that fund. <laughs> Yo, you raised the continuation fund? I raised the first couple hundred million dollars of the YC continuity fund. So uh, it was interesting advisors, to see. Right? That was the big yeah, LP, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mike Bloomberg. People don't know that, I guess, that he was the, the anchor for that. Yeah. So they're, I mean, great LPs. I mean, this is what um, great institutional LPs get to do, right? Yeah. So. And so now they're saying they're going to do it on a case-by-case basis instead of blindly. Because they were just doing it blindly. You raise a round, we take our pro rata. Now they're saying they're going to look at it and examine it, right? I don't know exactly. Um, I think they're still going to take partial. Uh, That that still makes sense. But, you know, for too long, it was definitely difficult for people who didn't get their percentage ownership and the seed. And then as things take off in the A, it's like, that's that's the round you want to be in too. And... um, I think that they've made the right moves. What, what's know, the worst behavior ecosystem. you've seen in this regard to people trying to elbow you and other seed investors out? Tell me, tell us the story without saying the names. Take us through it and then I how you the, tell that person they got to step back or not. I guess we just sort of point at all the things that we did to get to there. And, you know, often what we'll do is we're the ones who introduce the founder to that VC. So... That's where I think there is sort of a white glove aspect to this business. Um, you just got to look them in the eye and you just know, hey, we're both going to be in this business for a while. So let's make money. So, um, yeah, we're taking our pro rata. Thank you. We're not stepping yeah. back. But, uh, yeah. you know, if we were going to give up our pro rata, we would love to give it to you. But no, it's our fund. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that we can do pretty straightforward for some of the companies is, hey, look, just look at the stuff we did for you. Um, and a lot of founders, they're generally, like, really, really grateful, honestly. Hey, everybody. Well, as you know, it's 2020. And if you're still using one of these big wireless providers, have you asked yourself, what exactly are you paying for? Well, you're probably paying for all these expensive retail stores that they have and all these inflated prices and the hidden fees. You get these bills from these large, big wireless companies and you're shocked, right? I am. I know I am. They take advantage of you because they know you need your mobile phone and they know you need data services. Well, if there's one thing we learned about the D to C revolution, and we talk about it here on the podcast all the time, direct to consumer, it's that companies like Warby Parker or Casper or Dollar Shave Club, they all made better products and They saved consumers money. And this is the magic of direct-to-consumer. Well, what if that existed for mobile services? It does today. Mint Mobile is a new way for you to buy wireless service for your phone and for your tablet. It provides the same premium network coverage that you're already using, but at a fraction of the cost. No retail locations, no hassle, and everything's digital. You can just do everything online as you're supposed to. So all of those savings are passed directly on to you and I. Mint Mobile will cut your wireless bill 
down to just $15 a month. You're never going to pay for unused, unlimited data again. And you get to choose a plan, 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. And you can upgrade it at any time. They make it easy peasy. And every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text, as you would expect. So you keep your same phone number, you keep your same phone, you keep all your contacts, you just get a new SIM card, boop, pop it in. And you're spending 15 bucks a month instead of 10 times that, five times that, that you're currently paying. They flip the model on its head. There is no catch here. They are just a consumer-centric mobile company. So ditch your old wireless bill and start saving money with Mint Mobile today. Here's your call to action to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash twist. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash twist. Go ahead, do it right now. You're going to thank me later. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. Yeah, it's never the founder who wants to have the earlier investors get screwed. It's the later stage investor saying, hey, screw your existing investors. They got, they're lucky to be along for the ride. Give, we take everything in this round. And what I always tell founders is, I tell them on the way in now, by the way, here's something you can expect. We're going to invest in the company. You're going to meet a lot more people. We have a brand name. We're going to introduce you to a bunch of people. And at some point, some downstream investor is going to ask you to screw us. And what I want you to understand is those are bad actors who eventually, if they succeed in screwing us, there's only one more person left to screw in the stack. That's you. And so it's a good indication if they want to screw the person who brought the deal to them and helped the deal get through year one or two, if they want to screw that person, they will have no problem screwing you, the founder. And boy, does that work as like a little you know, inoculation. That's my vaccine. That's my way of inoculating the founders to it. And boy, it it does happen on a pretty regular basis. And I tell people just, I've had it happen three times, I think, in the last five years. I tell people straight up, because I'm not a nice guy, as you know, like I'm a full contact guy. I'm like a barbarian. I just tell them, if you, you you want, no, we don't give up our parade. Like, well, we're not going to, I had one person say, we're not going to do the deal if we can't hit the ownership. I said, let me explain something to you. Um, I am the point guard and I am world-class all-star point guard with many championships. I will never pass you the ball again. And not only will I not pass the ball to you, this is what I told one of the most famous VCs in the world. Like when I say top three, I mean top three in terms of the name of the person. If I said their first name, I didn't have to say their last name, put it that way. And I said to him, I said, listen, beep. Not only am I never sending you a company again, I know that these three competitors of yours are the ones that you compete most violently with. Yeah. I'm sending them proactively to those three going forward. And you can be certain I'll hit another Robinhood, Uber, or Calm, or Thumbtack, and you will not even know that I told them that I am not a fan of your firm. And this person was like, you're insane. And I was like, yes, I am. Like, (laughs) type Calacanis insane into fucking Google, yes. How dare you like try to like roll over the existing investors? And I, this part, they, this firm, I should say, changed their position on this. But oh, they great. were that was their initial Thanks position. For fighting the good fight. Well, I mean, it's it. I find it ridiculous to for this for these folks to think the people who did the hard work of you know the first year or two. It's really hard work. Like, why would you want to screw those people just to make an extra? What is the actual incremental they're getting? Yeah. We're talking That's about- a tricky thing because it's uh that you know I had a tweet recently about this where it's really like you know long duration is one of the main ways to get smarter right explain and so just literally if you're in it for longer than everyone else then 
you know, people can't screw you like this, right? Mm. Um, and there are a lot of people in venture broadly who are sort of, uh, they want their, you know, billion dollar exit. And then, you know, they got their home, they're gone. Like, you know, they're not going to work again. You know, people treat this business kind of like a lottery ticket. Yes. And that's really wrong. It's, um, it is interesting. Yeah. The good thing is, you know, this is where my argument, hey, we're going to be around this year, next year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, right? Like, yeah. Do you want to burn this bridge? Because, you know, we could probably make a lot of money together, but if that's how you want to play it, then that's how you want to play it, right? Yeah, um, people don't normally see this kind of, you know, sharp elbowedness until people like us bring it up. But it used to be the expectation was you will get screwed. I don't know if you saw the Giphy uh, tweet storm, but an angel investor who had invested through one of the platforms, $2,500, never got an update from the Giphy founders never got an update on their investment for like five years or something. They see the $400 million sale and they still don't know if they made any money. Yeah. And they probably are going to make very little because there was a $100 million overhang or something. So who knows what exactly happens? What did you think? Speaking of outliers, what you and I spent some time on the house party. Explain to people why house party has such strong product venture capitalist fit. Uh, Clubhouse, you mean? Clubhouse. What did I say? House party. House party. No, that's different. House party is the one where the uh, I went on. I logged in once, and they were like, "The old guy, old guy, get off. Old guy, old guy, log out. <laughs> like, don't old be guy here. at forty. <laughs> are you even forty yet, Gary? <laughs> I think I was like thirty-six when I logged into How old are you house now? party. The first. I'm thirty-nine. You're you're so. gonna be forty. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's wild. That's um, pretty wild. But Clubhouse. Yeah. I mean, Clubhouse. Credit to Paul sorry. and Rohan, honestly. Yeah, credit pretty amazing. But why does it have product venture capitalist fit? Like there's so many venture capitalists inside of it, investors, and they're so addicted to it that I said, this is the greatest example of product venture capital fit I've seen since Lux or Uber for that matter. Yeah. Because, you know, VCs would take Lincoln Town Cars. They wouldn't take taxi cabs. So they understood Uber immediately, right? It was like they were the first users. Here, it seems like the first users of this platform are founders and more often than not investors. Why do they? Why does it appeal so much to investors? You think? I mean, it felt like it still feels like Foo Camp, you know, uh. or South by, you know, South by behind the velvet ropes in the VIP room. Yeah. So the exclusivity is actually what makes that community work really well, and you're going to see the the next step for that company really will be can they open up and have the type of uh, incredible long-term cohorts you know th- what you need is sort of the long-term asymptote for your uh, long-term retention and theirs was off the charts it's just you know facebook level right right uh, but with 1600 users so the real challenge will be how do you go from there to 10,000 users 100,000 users um and you probably you know I'm just spitballing, uh, but my sense, if I were Paul, and you know, I'm very envious of that position because being able to create a social network from scratch is like I would undo all of my mistakes from Posterous because we right. had a shot, you know. Um, I think that's a challenge. Can you have an invite system that um, is almost as white glove as what Paul does when you first join that platform? Um, you know, your friend comes in and introduces you to their friends. You know, what is it like to be at a great party? Um, that has to be the replicated product experience over and over. Is again. that even possible? Has that ever happened in the history of social media where a white glove service was able to continue like that? The only thing I can think of is superhuman. 
that maintains that onboarding effect. Yeah, the VIP. You, know, you have onboarding. to pay for that, right? So can you can a free social network do it? No, um, absolutely not. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, well, and, how about this? What if you had a, an invite system that only gave you more invites if your previous invites converted? So they have to sure, log in that's a on a regular one. basis, right? Yeah. So it is a little bit of uh, the modern version of the Ponzi scheme for, but not for dollars, for engagement. That's right? a fascinating way to look at it. it. People don't remember, but Gmail was just a crazy innovative product when it emerged 20 years ago, I think. And the whole concept on Gmail was they gave you two invites. And people were like, oh, I only have two invites. You really thought about... How, you know, does my mom need one or my brother or my spouse? Like you don't want to waste them. eBay. <laughs> or selling them on eBay. People were doing yeah. that and flipping them. And here, that's actually a really interesting way to vector it is. Uh, that's if, what I would do. <laughs> yeah. If the previous person did that, how soon before Facebook copies the entire format and replicates oh, it? Oh, I'm sure there's a team working on it right now. What does that make you think of Facebook as an organization or Zuckerberg as a founder? I mean, we felt the same way about Microsoft back in the day. It's like, you know, Bill Gates um, has always been legendary. We always looked up to him, but, you know, there's a real stifling forced innovation. Um, I think the difference here is it's much harder to do that in social. I realize that the reason why there's a buzz about Clubhouse is people talk about Clubhouse the way they talk about discovering the Beatles. And they're yeah. like, I found it first, right? Right. Um, and yeah. you know, before it goes mainstream, and there's a cachet in that, and people actually think about these social consumer social teams in that same way. Mm. I mean, I I think Posturus for a time was like, you know, because I was on your podcast right. with Michael Arrington, and Mike actually launched us on TechCrunch and left it up like the top story all weekend, like forty eight hours on TechCrunch. And what do you get? Ten thousand people, twenty thousand people signed up. Yeah, it was ten thousand signups, um, which is you know what you get now uh, when you're top of product hunt, which is which is by evolution. the way that is escape velocity. When you think about mm -hmm. it, like if you if the product does have product market fit, getting to ten thousand is enough. That's yeah. enough to you know if just five percent of those users stick around. Now you got five hundred people who can actually make it happen. Uh, did you try to get that Series A? Did you were you able to make any headway with Clubhouse? I tried to like invest, and obviously, you know, Andreessen coming over the top for a hundred million. Uh, <laughs> don't need much. I'll just put it don't as uh, we really like that team. They're great. <laughs> you, <laughs> I'm, you know, I think Andrew is a great partner there, and yeah. you know, Andrew's a good friend of ours, and we love Andreessen. So you know, it's a great get. Um, they have amazing things. Uh, you know, wind at their back. COVID, you couldn't ask for a better reason to exist. And they have incredible. Should user it have base. been a hundred million? Is that like just ridiculous for a, a service with sixteen hundred like, people? You know, not to get all crypto on it, yeah. but you know, money printer go burr, right? Yeah. So what is do what is a dollar, and um, what is the nature of your financial reality? <laughs> do you ever question your the nature of your financial reality? Um, you know, is Joe Rogan worth a hundred million dollars over five years? Um, you well, know, you would argue yeah. if he's getting 10 million people per episode to watch each episode over time right. that you could actually make a quantification, you could quantify the value. Like I yeah, said in the totally. early when we were talking about it, if 5% of his viewers convert and he's got 50 million viewers a year, it's 2.5 million. If he's got 10 million viewers, it's 500,000. If they stay for three years, it's paid for itself. So yeah. there is actually, a, you could actually compute it. Uh, in this case, you have 1,600 people. And it basically means you're paying, you know, uh, whatever it is, $700,000 a yeah. person 
for active users, which totally. makes no sense since it's a free product. Unless it becomes Twitter. Unless it and, becomes Twitter. Uh, and so, if it does, then that's the bet. Well, that's well, that's how you square the Would circle. you make that bet? If they said to you, listen, Gary, we love you more than anybody. If you give us $5 million at the top of your range, at $100 million, we'll give you 5% of the company. Would you make that bet? At a hundred million dollar valuation. At a fifty, I know the answer is yes, right? Safe to assume at fifty, you would have done it. If you're going to do fifty, then a hundred is actually not that far off. So would you have done it at fifty then? And would man, you, you put me on the hot seat, man. <laughs> well, I'm not asking you if you offered fifty. <laughs> I'm asking if you would have. <laughs> but based on that yes. pause, you would have. Yes. Okay. So that's where, like, here, here's my thinking on it. I would have certainly done it at like 30 or 40 because, you know, like, well, you're paying a 5X premium, a 10X premium. Who cares? Like, there's obviously something very special here about it, right? And something very unique. And then I was like, yeah, no, I would never have invested in 100. Then I rethought that and I was like, you know what? If they said to me right now, hey, we have 200K you could put in. You can own 20 basis points of it or whatever it is. I, I would say yes, only because Andreessen Horowitz now has so much reputation on the line to make this work, having made such an outlandish bet, or you know, outlandish outlier, let's say. I don't want to charge the language too much here, but it is an outlier for sure. They are going to be super motivated to make it work. And boy, I mean, Ben Horowitz's wife has been holding court like every night on it, and they're pulling out every stop in the Andreessen Horowitz arsenal to get this going. I wish them super well. And, you know, dude, what do you think of the, the $2 million product, so. secondary? Well, when you look at Rohan and you look at, um, you know, he has a sick kid. So I that's, think that does mitigate it. I, I changed that makes my a position big difference, on it. Yeah. You know? So the, one of the two founders has a sick child who has a very serious uh, illness. And so the million dollars for each founder. You couldn't give it to one and not the other, and then giving a million dollars to somebody with a sick kid who's going to be pursuing this and probably needs a little bit. It doesn't seem as outrageous given that mitigating factor. Yeah. Look, the reality for every founder, every person in our capitalist system is that the first few million dollars um, in your bank account, it's going to sound like crazy, crazy privilege. But, uh, you know, I grew up uh, without a lot of money and sometimes food insecure and you know, I know what it's like to sort of be face to face with um, not having money and, you know. What was it like? Sometimes being worried that, you know, are you going to eat tomorrow, right? What was that like um, for you? I mean, I was a kid. So How old were you? I was just trying to 12, 14. 12 or 14 and didn't yeah. know if there would be food on the table. Well, my, my, you know, mom worked at a nursing home as a nurse assistant. And uh, there were days where she'd have to go and get bread from, um, you know, someone would come up with a, come uh, to the nursing home and deliver a bag of expired bread uh, to the back of the nursing home. And, you know, that, mom would, would, bring that would be that how home. we, yeah, that would be how we ate that week. Expired and, food. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That'll get me. And uh, I understand that, you know, I, you know, I can recall that and I can go back that back to that moment at any time. And there are real times when I was 22, Stanford graduate, and I had, you know, that in the back of my head. And in retrospect, like, that made me take less risk and- um, The fear. Yeah, the fear, right? And, you know, that's a real thing. And um, it's a really important moment when someone's made something to be able to take a little bit off the table. Um, 
and then that lets you swing for the fences. Um, you know, I'll tell you, Chris Saka let me do that with Posturus. Um, he brokered a deal that let me get married to my wife because you're I, kidding. You know, he let you sell some secondary. Yeah, it was you know enough to pay for a wedding. You know, so and I'll always be thankful to him for that. Um, it's a nice aspect to the ecosystem. It was something that I believe at the time when you were doing Posturus. I think Fred Wilson, also Ron Conway, a lot of people were very concerned about it. You remember this debate of like secondary is going to kill venture. Why? Yeah, why did that? Tricky. Why? 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 Why is it tricky? Why did people feel that way? And why have we worked out, you know, some sort of equilibrium on this issue where it's not controversial, except maybe in an outlier case like Clubhouse. I mean, having been in those shoes, um, it matters a lot, right? Um, to have that it's easy, little bit of cash. It's easy to forget, yeah. right? At some, you know, you hear very successful people, people who are peers, like I'm sure like the two of us have even said this, like we just use money as a way to keep score. Right. But for the majority of people in society, that's not true at all. No, they use right? money to put food on the table, literally. Right. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, exactly. I, I had moments where our family was negative and in danger of, we lost the business and my mom also a nurse and in danger of going bankrupt and my dad almost going to jail because he didn't, couldn't pay his taxes. Like these were very acute things that in my mind, that's why I asked you like, how did it affect you, that fear? Because I had that fear for a long time. Oh, I still have that fear, which is very irrational. And, you have um, that fear still of you know, losing everything and having no money. It's, I mean, and it's very irrational, right? Completely um, irrational now. But it's in the background, right? It's and an um, I don't think you ever but, lose it. Yeah. Um, I think it's really hard to truly forget. I, I have not lost it, but it definitely has not manifested itself as acutely now because when I was younger, I was like, I have to get money and power quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't, it was, in your case, you said, you mentioned it was a fear. For me, it was a fear that led me, I think, to be hyper aggressive and cutthroat in, I have to get money and power as quickly as possible before this all collapses and burns around me. Yeah. That was actually my mindset That's for a long real. time. Like I was yeah. like a gladiator who just, I literally, this is why the movie Gladiator is my favorite film and along with Blade Runner and like I resonated with so much because I felt my whole life, I was a moment away like a gladiator in a ring from dying. So I just had to put my best fight on the table every time. Every time out, I had to fight to the death. That's probably why I had a weird reputation in the industry because everybody's like, why is this guy fighting on him for every single point of contention? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you make some money, it does take that away. But it hasn't gone away for you. You're still thinking about it once in a while. I mean, I'm able to You're you aware know, of look it. down and look around and I can, you know, put my I can put everything in perspective, but way back in the background, right? You know, you wake up and you're like, oh, you know, oh, it's actually okay, right? But um and then where it really matters for me is like, I want that. I want people to create wealth. Yes. I want people to be able to create wealth. I know that that's the core of what you're doing too. And I think that that's why I'm you know, actually a venture capitalist is I actually want to find people who are just like me, who experienced this, but are capable of sitting down in front of a computer, making a thing for a billion people. And, you know, there's a way out, right? It's exhilarating to think that a person coming from nothing can sit behind a keyboard and make something that changes the world and changes their fate and yes, makes them wealthy. Why do people hate the rich now? Why is it that when we were growing up, people wanted successful people to exist in the world and now and we're rooting for them to succeed and rooting for them to 
become wealthy and famous. And we we almost were excited for Bill Gates to, you know, become a billionaire. We were excited to see Jeff Bezos win. It was an exciting. And now it's abhorrent. What's happened? Where do we go wrong? I mean, the wealth wealth inequality has been pretty insane, and that's structural and you know, sort of almost a salient feature of fiat currencies. So that's where we're at, right? Um, unprecedented wealth inequality. And well, explain what that means in terms of the fiat and currencies and why this is a feature of the system, maybe not a bug, or yeah. maybe it is a bug. I don't know if you feel it's a feature or a bug, but why does this system we have set up create this possibility? I actually first heard about this problem when I was working at Palantir, working on hedge fund software for Peter Thiel's hedge fund. And one of the books they made us all read was uh, this book called the, the Dollar Crisis, which is actually a really interesting book. Um, the other one uh, that everyone knows to read is The Sovereign Individual, obviously. <laughs> but uh, between those two books, you get actually a really interesting view on what is a dollar and did it mean something before and what does it mean now? And the really interesting feature of fiat currency is that it is not backed by anything. Um, and that was true up until uh, really normalization of relations with China um, and then Nixon taking us off of uh, the gold standard. Not saying that we need to go back on the gold standard, but this is historical. Uh, you know, suddenly the US dollar was the reserve currency for all of the other nations. That's how we do our trade. We, you know, people buy oil in dollars. And uh, honestly, the US is massively the beneficiary of being able to print as many of those as possible. And if anything, we're in the middle of such a crisis that, hey, let's print more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I think, actually a really strange situation to be in. Um, you know, we want more money printing right now because that's actually staving off what could have been a worse Great Depression than the Great Depression. Yeah, um, it's easy to be cynical about those $1,200 checks or whatever it was, or raising the unemployment, 50%, whatever the basic was, 200 to 600, depending on state you're in, making it whatever, 500 to 800. These things seem like small things, but they're, they're big swings when you think of the tens of millions of people receiving them. Um, and it, it, the, you would agree the standard for the entire world, though, has gone up. So we have, in some way, uh, an optics problem for entrepreneurship and the polarization of wealth. People are looking at the example of Jeff Bezos and saying the entire system is broken when they don't look at, oh my God, look at all of the jobs created in the world. And that before COVID, we were at record unemployment at a time when they told us automation was going to lead to massive depression era uh, unemployment. And it never yeah. happened. And the opposite happened. It's so strange, right? Yeah. And there are all sorts of crazy macro effects from... Um, the printing of money and just, I mean, look at every growth stage company with the crazy valuations, you know, yeah. we work in others, you know, SoftBank Vision, all of these things are connected to um, just this idea that dollars are seeking yield at all costs. And the only pure yield there is, is um, what happens with our portfolio companies and some of the other ones too. Um, but some of them are sort of, they just look like the other stuff. They, they look like uh, what could provide yield. And that's the, the difficult thing about late stage valuations today. You know, there are Theranos is in there too. Yeah, you have Theranos or fab.com, which was an interesting startup that went to a billion. I knew somebody who had like 5% ownership of that. And, you know, they're buying NetJet cards thinking that they hit the, the lottery. And 
they couldn't. They they were basically in a position where that went to zero before anybody was able to sell any shares. Um, do you, are you a believer in UBI? Do you think that giving people some base amount of uh, compensation or money each month would give them the ability to be more entrepreneurial? Do you think it will create sloth and people will not be motivated or have purpose and, you know, create opioid abuse and, you know, people just giving up on going to work? Because I see uh, coming out of this COVID that there are people who are just saying, you know what, staying home is easier and it's easier for me to just stay home and maybe I won't go back into the workforce. It's too hard. Yeah. What do you think of UBI? I'm curious your take. I never got your take on it. I mean, my more hopeful view is that things like Patreon could exist, but for all things. So Patreon mm -hmm. is uh, that platform that actually supports creators and they support incredible creators who get to basically self-actualize by, you know, humming show tunes and <laughs> all creating. kinds of stuff on YouTube. It's they're creating, right? Yeah. And they're be living their best lives, you know? Um, and I think that that's really important. That's, that's the good version of it, right? Yeah. And, um, the, the tricky thing is, I, you know, I'm not an economist and so I probably don't know enough to weigh in one way or another. You know, yeah. it's, it sounds like a promising experiment. Things like give directly, um, actually were illegal, I've learned in the United States, but are suspended during, um, a pandemic. So that's an interesting experiment. Giving you know, directly. Oh yeah. There's a, um, nonprofit called Give Directly that literally just gives money to people, um, initially in Africa and they're starting to do some more operations here in the United States. They're just like, screw um, it. We don't need to have like some big, you know, bake off to who should get the money, some big thinking through or scholarship process. Just give everybody a little bit of money. Take the yeah, edge off. And they're going to use it to um, actually better their situations, right? They're not going to, you know, just drink it away. They're actually going to make capital improve. They're going to be rational, self-interested actors generally, right? There will be extreme cases of people not, not using it properly. But, you know, by and large, people are, you know, smart. They're actually, they're trustworthy with money and they're going to try to invest it, especially if you give it to the woman. <laughs> it turns out, yeah, women actually are better stewards of capital yeah. than men. Yeah, I, I think if you're actually worrying about it getting blown on booze and beer, I think giving it to women will probably have a better outcome than just giving it to guys who maybe don't think this through as well. Uh, I think we, we can say that. Uh, how's Instacart done during all this chaos? I know you're an early investor in Instacart. How are they doing through the pandemic? I know that... Their service went 10x or 3x, who knows what it is. Yeah, but. it's been amazing. I mean, I use it all the time and we're really thankful for it because, shoot, it's just, you know, less. It's I can use it with my uh, parents. You know, they're still in Fremont. Um, I, you know, I know my wife's using it with her parents and I think it's been really, really great. Yeah. And what do you think about the profitability of that sector? Can it be profitable? Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, Instacart? People have been talking and a lot of hand-wringing around, hey, is this delivery ever going to be profitable or is it just a venture-backed competition that's yeah. causing it to be unprofitable? How do you think about that and capital's role in it? Yeah, I mean, I've seen the models and the reality is, and the thing that people aren't talking about that they should be is density. So these models are highly unprofitable when you start off and they become very profitable once you have density. And density is a function of how much money you have for CAC and uh, customer acquisition retention, cost, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, for customer acquisition cost and long-term value, right? right? So this is a little bit of a spreadsheet exercise, but, um, and this is the hard part about being a startup founder. Like you are actually running almost a scientific experiment and you have to, you know, work towards the metrics. And, you know, the best, the best companies out of this space will be profitable and they will be really great businesses. 
Um, but you know, as you know, competition is the enemy of profitability. Yeah, especially when there's unlimited capital in the world and Masayoshi-san or whoever is deciding, hey, I'm just going to give money to Uber and to DoorDash. And you 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 have the same investor giving money to two parties. I think he might also be, is he also an Instacart? Yeah. The interesting thing is Masayoshi-san's, um, part of his plan is actually to buy um, large chunks of uh, competing different concerns and then have them not compete. <laughs> Right. Which instantly, it's what he did with telecoms uh, back in the 90s. Uh -huh. So this is something that has happened in the past that will continue to happen. Yeah, so maybe he'll tell DoorDash, hey, and Uber. I know he was pushing DoorDash, Uber to buy DoorDash at some point. Now Uber's looking at Grubhub. It might be a better deal for them. Uh, do you think that the that government should be trying to regulate the food delivery business at this early stage? or And do you think that... Why are people thinking that these are predatory services if they're still losing money? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's tough. Some of this is uh, mixed up with the politics around um, how you know how is tech being perceived, certainly in certain local jurisdictions, like in San Francisco. And I think it's tough. Like I grew up in tech. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area in tech, and so tech is actually what got me in to, you know, it, it changed my life, right. right? It gave me the privilege that I have now. Um, and that's the difficult thing being caught between that because I see both sides, right? Um, all the people who I grew up with, uh, they either work in tech or they left, right? And that's the tension. Um, and you have a lot of people who have been here for 30, 40 years. They're the beneficiary of incredible amounts of wealth creation in their home. And that's been protected by Prop 13, um, which means they can stay there forever and i think that that's actually really good for these are retirees these are people who don't have a their, lot of their their tax income. basis doesn't get raised so if their home right. value if they bought their home for 50,000 in the 70s and it's now worth 2 million they're paying tax on 50,000 not yeah. 2 million which, and that's the unintended consequence which is uh then you have people who their entire net wealth is in their home right and you know, do you want more building? You know, if you build a duplex or triplex that makes space for millennials or makes space like, you know, unfortunately, the only people who can actually afford it because there's no building is tech people. And right. so then you connect, you know, do we make space for young people? No, they're only tech people. We hate tech people, right? It's just a straight line between personal interest and uh, hatred of a group. Which is really weird. The people who you really, I mean, it, it's... What they really should do is have some kind of maybe it's like a trailing 20 year tax thing. So, you know, if you bought your home in 1970, you know, and it's 1990, you're paying 1980s taxes, yeah. right? So you just, you're, you get a 20 year mulligan or something or a 30 year mulligan on your house, which would be the equivalent of when you stop working and you have the 30 year retirement, right? You could come up with something reasonable where, you know, anybody who's, you know, got a home that's that much older could could move on, but it it just seems to me like for this city to be anti-tech now, when Twitter and Square just said we're a work from home first company, not you have oh, yeah. that option. We're work from home first. Commercial real estate in San Francisco is going to go down. What percent do you think? I mean, you know what's tough is I think the big ones are going to leave and. Uh, I did a quick survey on my tw my Twitter, and only 20% of people said they were going totally remote. 70% um, said they were hybrid. So, what do you think that number was previous? 
if we had, if you'd done that survey in five ten percent maybe tops, exactly you know so or I hybrid think that, you know, or yeah I mean it's been a hot market for a long time so I think prices will come down but occupancy I bet will actually stay pretty constant um, for make space for people who are going to stay so interesting yeah I I I'm been talking to a lot of companies and they're just like not renewing our lease. And that to me is like, whoa. So the big companies might not add, eh, maybe they'll sublet on the margins. So you're probably right there. But I just think a lot of these companies are like, you know what? If employees want to work from home and our second line item or third line item is facilities, well. We can do something about that. Yeah, know? people are gonna just cut it. And then th this is what I think is the route. I'm curious you think of my theory of like the route out of this you know, what will be certainly a recession and could be worse. You're a company that has 100 employees. You go full remote. You get rid of your office space costing you 50000 a month. You say, or is it, you wind up saving a million a year on that. Okay, well, that's like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people, you know, highly paid six-figure salaries, 10 people making 100000 that you could add or you could just be more profitable. You could throw a million to the bottom line. Then you stop having to pay the San Francisco premium, which was 20 k on top of a salary? What do you think a remote salary? The difference, 20, 30K, 40K? It might be more. I mean, might be 50? It's pretty significant. Yeah. So if it was 20, 30, 40K extra, now that goes away. And Facebook already said, Zuckerberg said, if you leave San Francisco, we're adjusting your salary down. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that. I'm curious to see the numbers from that. That is pretty, I mean, Zuckerberg it's is aggressive. so hardcore. Yeah. He makes everybody else look like, softies he's just like yeah no you can totally work from home i'm taking back 30 percent of your salary if you do yeah it's crazy but this to <laughs> me means companies will be that much more profitable and that means they will then start investing again because they'll be sitting there saying oh you know what we cleared a million dollars in rent we uh the next 10 hires cost us 30 percent yeah. less and 10 people left the company we we reorged uh, during COVID, now we're like lean and mean. Are you seeing that possibility of like lean? Well, mean the good companies? thing is there will still be a marketplace, and so the interesting thing is Facebook huh. can. Facebook is, I think, probably anchoring at that because they know that it'll actually play out in the marketplace. Mm. Um, and if you know, it's not legal for them to talk to the other companies and collude about that. But if they right. come out and publicly say it, then. Uh, more of the other companies will choose to do that. And it'll it's actually a form of public collusion, which is wow. kind of interesting. So I didn't think of it that way. So they come out of the gate and say, You're, we're going to be up to 50%. You can apply to be work from home. But in fairness to people who didn't get the cost of living adjustment that you got moving to San Francisco, if you choose to move out, you're going to lose that cost of yeah. li living that we gave you coming here because it would be unfair for the other person living in tennessee or yeah. austin to not get it so the game theory is put it out there and then we'll see if it sticks if other people adopt it too it'll stick and if other people don't i bet you they get rid of that they just you know it's going to be a market price whether they're remote or in the bay area either way and um, right now it's about what other people are going to do when they right. go remote like this is like high level it? game and gamesmanship with google isn't it and Apple. yeah they're basically saying like okay google apple because those are two companies that have not been work from home either. Yeah. Well, and those, if they go there, yeah. then you know they got the stake in the ground, right? And um, you know it's not legal for them to have a email conversation that'll come out in discovery. It's already you know that has already happened before. That they happened pay, before. Fines yeah. for that, right? Yeah. So the only other way you could do it is you know 
publicly, publicly do it. Right? Trial like balloon. That's unassailable, right? Yeah, it's a trial balloon. It's like, here's what we chose. You choose what you want. Yeah. Do you think Google, Facebook, Instagram, let's just go with Google, Facebook, and Uber as, as outliers. Do you think they could have been built remote and they could have grown to the heights they grew as a remote organization? Or did they need to have that energy in a building somewhere with a hard driving leader to hit those notes? What do you think? I actually think that you needed Slack and you needed a lot of these tools that actually now enable it. And you just didn't have those tools before. Mm. So yes, um, if they had those tools, you think it could have been built? Probably. Yeah. See, that's the thing, the big unknown is I think it's very easy for a company like Facebook or Twitter to say, hey, we're moving to it when they're in the we're growing 30% year over year yeah. phase. You're but scaling. You're people scaling. People know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, people know how to do it. It's not like there's this intensity where we have to beat Friendster and MySpace. We need to be in a war room. And that war room mentality, I think that that's going to be the big unlock is everybody's going to leave San Francisco. Everybody's going to go remote. And then you're going to see this like group of crazies say, we're only hiring in an office. We're going to be here. We're going to do it the old school way. And they're going to just start kicking ass. And maybe then people are like, oh, that's just too much of an advantage for us not to have. Do you think it's an advantage that everybody's in the same room or a disadvantage? Oh, it's definitely an advantage. Um, yeah. It's definitely unproven yet if you can get to an IPO class company um, consistently. I think it's possible. It's almost certainly possible. Um, it's yeah. just a matter of Probable. how much harder it is yeah. to actually implement the systems and mm. actually do it. Um, and so I don't think there's uh, absolutes here. Um, but if you have choices, people are just making different choices because they have to make choices. And I think we're going to find out. Um, well, that was the question about WordPress. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of Matt Mullenweg's and somebody was like, listen, they built a billion dollar company. And what somebody said, and it was a little bit crass in this conversation, that that should have been a $10 billion company. And if it had been in work in the same place, it would have been a 10 billion. And the 37 signals folks are like, we should have, you know, we are work from home. It's been working for us. But let's face it, Asana became a much bigger company than Basecamp. So I think what these lessons of the people who've done it before have proven is you'll have a happier workforce. You'll have an easier life. You will have a smaller outcome. That's, I think, what the lesson will ultimately be. And I think you're right. The jury's still out on can you build a, let's call it a $10 billion company, a $100 billion company in this regard? Do you think people working from home give up opportunity if the CEO and the management team are in a central headquarters? In other words, they're out of sight, they're out of mind, they're just not going to have the same opportunity. I mean, I think that's why hybrid is actually the hardest possible way to do it. Mm, um, it's way better to be perfectly in one location where everyone has a level playing field or perfectly remote where everyone has a level playing field. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we funded around like two years ago, we didn't know that COVID-19 was going to happen. Around for the people who don't know is uh, a Zoom competitor that's built specifically for hybrid teams. So you can actually open your laptop um, and your, your designer for, you know, sitting right next to you will open their laptop. It puts you in a session automatically. You click that link over to someone else and there you, you have three little chat heads of you talking and collaborating over a document, a design, whatever you need. And it can be um, persistent, right? Yeah. Yeah, the whole idea is that it should be as easy to jump into one of these sessions, a Zoom, with um, you know, echo termination, without sort of the rigmarole of you know, getting into this. If you can have uh, as easy as tapping on someone's shoulder uh, impromptu conversations about collaborative docs, then that's actually how you can do hybrid well. And you know, it's... 
basically power distance, right? Um, if you are remote and you're on Zoom and everyone's looking at a screen, well, in the meeting, they can just read cues and have a much faster conversation. And over there, you're like reading a transcript, right? So actually, the medium matters a lot because it sets um, management sort of distance. I mean, these psychological factors matter a lot in social software, uh, which is kind of obvious at some level. But it's I, I think that in social software, we don't think about these simple psychological facts enough. Yeah, it definitely is going to take a major adjustment. I don't know if you saw like the uh, Away founder was derided because she was like hardcore and i was like you know what i just looking at the transcripts of what she said i if somebody said those out loud in person they would not seem horrible they seem maybe crass or you know curt maybe curt is the right word in a slack room and it's almost yeah. like yeah you know the away founder maybe needs to like as people call it the uh ish sandwich say something nice say something that needs to be improved, i.e. criticism, and then say something nice. And literally, like, if you just do that on Slack, hey, great job on X, terrible job on Y, good job on Z, you can, like, literally avoid half the problem is, like, yeah, totally. just some basic, uh, you know, level Management setting. Management is the little things. They don't remember what you say. They remember how you made them feel. It is true. It's true. Like literally that there is nothing truer than that. And I and I think for this next generation, they're they have a different view of work. What do you think? You're you're a, the tail end of Gen Z, but you're invested of Gen X, but you're investing yeah. in Gen Z and millennials. Yeah, we're sort of right in there. Gen right Y. On. I'm Gen Y. <laughs> no. You're definitely Gen X. Really? You were born nineteen eighty? <laughs> I'm, I'm the youngest Gen X then, eighty one. Yeah, I think you're still Gen X. I think up to 84 is Gen X or something like yeah, that. You could, I'm on the cusp. You're on the cusp. You, what do you feel more like? Do you feel more like an al alternative Gen Xer or more I like I definitely a, love, you know, some of the Gen X bands a little bit more. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, let's go with the music part. I'll go with that. So you like Nirvana or <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Peppers, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins. Smashing yeah, Pumpkins, incredible, go. elite, yeah. perfect. Um, I'd just say most underrated rock band in the last 30 years is definitely Smashing Pumpkins, 100%. Oh, yeah. Um so you, uh, how do you, how do you, what do you find in the millennial workforce that's different, if at all, uh, from the approach that we took as Gen Xers who wanted to like, you know, take our seat at the table and kind of, that was enough. Do you feel there's anything different or do you, maybe all these like self-selecting founders, they're all the same. They're just founders. Oh, it's funny. I actually can't really tell when I talk with people, sometimes I can't really tell what age they are. <laughs> That's fascinating, yeah. Uh, but, you know, around Y Combinator, we would spend time with 22-year-olds, 27-year-olds, and we talked to them all the same. And then the best founders, you wouldn't be able to tell, right? That was actually one of the tests, was the absolute best founders, it doesn't matter what, you know, they might actually, you might find out later that they were 20 or 22, but and you might be surprised by that because, right. you know, you couldn't tell what their age was. So the best founders are sort of like that. Um, it sort of doesn't matter. Yeah, that is definitely the case. I think if you look at founders, they just self-select for people who want to change the world and who are driven. And so you don't get this millennial kind of like they're too soft, they're snowflakes kind of thing because they're not part well, of the millennial. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't as work. Is a founder... You all you end up learning that you have to go after the thing that actually works, and there are lots of things that don't work that you know they don't give you the outcome that you want. And if it doesn't work, then the whole thing doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and so the sooner people realize, the better, honestly. 
All right, uh, we're sitting here a year from now. What's our conversation going to be looking back at this time? Oh, man. Hopefully we have a vaccine. That'd be great. uh, I'd be truly great. Things are sort of returning to normal, right? It's uh, To me, it's like, I hope the money printers work. Mm. So all this stimulus we're putting in actually amounts to something rather other than just debt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a, it's interesting to watch like the PPE loans and uh, all this stuff. It feels like the government did – this is the thing that's confounding about our federal government. It seems like they were able to so quickly send money to companies. I, I saw you know a bunch of companies getting PPE, this payroll protection stuff and these other loans in three weeks. And then we can't get the country to wear masks yeah. or we can't get testing done. And it's like, we can really mobilize, I think it was 500 billion in loans and, you know, trillions in stimulus overall. They really moved quickly with the money printing, but they couldn't get consensus around testing or uh, masks. So weird. Yeah. I can't well, understand. The, I would argue that it's the filter bubble, right? Um, you know, our societies are becoming a lot less intermingled. And the result is you hang out with pe- you, you know, basically hang out with people who are just like you all day. And actually, the only interaction sometimes people have, especially right now, because we're all locked in, or sh- you know, in shelter in place is that, you know, meeting people who we disagree with on Twitter, or Facebook comments, you know, and now the solution on Twitter is now you can write a post. And this is actually my idea from like five years ago, I wrote a blog post about it. What if you could tweet and only your followers could reply people you follow? Or people, yeah, people you follow as opposed to people you're following could reply. And they just launched it. And I was, I thought to myself, oh no, what a bad suggestion I made. The best part of Twitter is getting challenged by people who disagree with you. Yeah. So now it's going to change it a lot. (laughs) It's going to be an interesting effect. What's going to happen, you think? It's just going to get boring? We're going to be a lot more in our echo chambers and that'll make us feel safe. Maybe we, a lot of us need to feel safe right now, especially people who have a lot of followers. But, yeah, um, honestly. It might be an engagement hack. Like they might be finding they have to do it. And that's probably what their tests are showing them. What do you mean by that? I mean, if the if the experience of people who tweet the most degrades a lot, um, engagement broadly will go down uh. simply because they won't tweet as much. And, you know, that's a spiral that you don't want on a social network like that. So when you tweet, you get pain and suffering. Yeah. Therefore, you don't tweet. I think a lot of people like have stopped tweeting simply because of that, right? It's uh, right. a lot more intense, a lot more anon, an- anonymous accounts. And, um, Bots yeah. are just brutal. Yeah. They're just brutal. They just, att- I mean, I, I went to the YouTube comments on my a CNBC hit recently, and I was delighted at the level of the discourse. And yeah, then YouTube I, comments is actually a little better now. <laughs> you Like literally- it's it's the flippening, right? Like yeah. we had the flip. It's a flippening of Twitter was the intelligent discussion. YouTube was the trolls and chaos where they were just like, screw that fat guy. Screw that fat Greek. Screw that Asian guy. Fuck him. You know, like it was just literally personal attacks on how you looked. Like yeah. how literally people were like, fuck Jason Calacanis, that fat Greek. And they're like, Gary Tan, four eyes. What? Just like literal personal <laughs> attacks. I know it's de-evolved, hasn't it? And this and is something that's solvable. Yeah. I mean, why does Twitter not just solve the bot problem? I should have a button that says, I don't want to see replies or I don't want reply. The easier button would have been, 
do not allow replies to people who've been on Twitter for more than less than X days or years. So I could say, I don't want replies from anybody whose account is under a year old. And so in order to participate with me, you got to be a year old. Yeah. Or I well, follow Well, Twitter's you. a public company now, right? Yeah, and that so does change all It's actually there. that much harder to shift something. It has to be existential for a public company to switch on a dime. It's not a startup anymore. And that's why startups can exist. Exactly. All right, listen, Gary, it's delightful to have you on the pod. You're always interesting. Uh, you can... Follow Gary Tan, that's two R's, G-A-R-R-Y-T-A-N, or his amazing YouTube channel where he's publishing weekly, very beautiful videos, uh, which is at youtube.com slash Gary Tan. Yep, that's that's it. And then you Perfect. can DM me on Instagram for now, as long as I can DMs reply wide, to everyone. You're encouraging people to slide into your DMs. Yeah, and I will try and help, uh, you know, startup advice. It's actually given me a lot of interesting ideas for tweets and episodes. So that is, is the my great version thing. of talking to my users. It is a great way to, to find out what is a good topic for. So limited I'd time like to, only. I, you know, I'd like to keep it open, but, you know, Jason tells me it's not possible. No, so you can. It's just people, what you'll find is one out of 10 people will berate you for not getting back to them. And yeah. then you have to, uh, what I do with that case is I write back. I'm so sorry. I'm, I was on deadline for the next book or I'm so sorry. It's been a little bit crazy for me now. And then they yeah. almost universally apologize for flying off the There's hand. a human being. There's a human being on the other end. Well, people, sometimes people are like, this is the fourth time I've emailed you. And I'm like, okay, you emailed me a list of four startup ideas and it's 6,000 words. Like, yeah. I, I have books I need to read. You know, I have books I need yeah, to yeah, write yeah. that are 6,000 words is a big piece of. Like, come yeah. on. This is where Instagram helps me a lot because there's a character limit. Is there? And, so they, and uh, people are always trying to say, uh, can I send email you, send me a deck? And what I'm saying is, uh, can we just talk about it here? Which is actually a mirror it. of uh, what a YC interview is like. The you 10 know, you actually rule. have to, you actually bring down the aperture all the way down, and then you can have a very high bandwidth conversation, and it forces them to be a lot more thoughtful about what they're putting out. And then we can have a conversation. So I think that that's an interesting discovery. Oh, but that is the Instagram. number one complaint and bad feeling I've had as I'm not a competitor to YC, we're coexisters, there's too many startups really for it to be competitive. But universally, when people say they went to their YC and they had a bad experience, which typically a bad experience means I didn't get selected. Mm. So it's sort of like, it would have been a great experience if they were selected, but yeah. but they say, oh, they didn't understand it. They spoke for three or four minutes and I only, they didn't understand my idea, I only had six minutes. But you're saying the way you guys designed that was to purposely see how they do in just 10 minutes. Every billion dollar company that has ever passed through YC passes that test with flying colors. I mean, obviously- What is the test exactly? So Describe the test for me, which is- uh, In 10 minutes, can I understand? Uh, I actually did a YouTube video about this. So yeah, okay. you know, how to ace your YC interview. But high level, it's in 10 minutes, can, I, can someone who's reasonably smart understand who's it for, what is it, and do we believe that you're the ones to do it? And it's that, that's the bar. That's it. Has right. YC become? And can you have a conversation? That makes total sense. Has YC become too big? The number of companies well, each year, do you think? Classic YC is amazing, and then the hard part for me is like I don't know how to fund things that are not software. So, um, right. I think they're experimenting, and the reality is we uh, go back to the first principles, which is there's too much money in the world. Mm. And this is actually a very direct, like what you're doing, what YC is doing. All of these things are very important in the world of infinite capital because everyone downstream from us believes that 
there aren't enough good ideas. And that's ridiculous. There are so many things that are broken in society. Yeah. Why are they not being fixed? Well, they're not being fixed because we have educational systems and funding systems and all of these things that are ossified and stuck, right? The, you know, people go yeah. into these organizations and they never come out, right? And what a founder can do, and when we work at a startup, what you get to do is do something that's brand new. Crack and that's it open. Yield, yeah. right? So people are, you know, here's this like giant infinite pool of capital. And then here's this like infinite number of crazy ass problems that need to be solved. And in the middle is like, we need to help these people. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you need to, <laughs> like, how do we put them in the right place where they can start these businesses that employ thousands of people and make like a billion dollars or hundred billion dollars in GDP? You know, the thing is, it's so easy to write that hundred million dollar check in Twitter, Facebook, Uber, Coinbase, whatever, when they've hit scale and they're at past 50 or a hundred million in revenue. But then taking that same hundred million and writing... Uh, what would be, I would say, $101 million checks or $1,100,000 checks. Like, it's so much harder to write $1,000, $100,000 checks. It takes so much more effort. Mm -hmm. And that really is where I think the logjam is and where Techstars and, and YC and Launch Accelerator, like, this is where I think these sorting i i consider what yc does what techstars do, does and what we do as a sorting mechanism an angel list it's just a first level sort on the deluge of a hundred thousand pitches and getting it down to two thousand and then it's up to seed funds like yours or alien lee or uh, hunter and homebrew and hunter doesn't follow me on twitter uh, <laughs> really what'd yeah. you say to him i said you're never coming on this week in startups again i really had like a I just, no, I didn't say that. Oh, man. No, he can come on this week, start saying time watch. But I was like, he only follows a thousand. So I think he's one of those precious people. And I'm very, yeah, yeah. I mean, we post, I think, five clips of the show every day. So I guess that could be annoying to people who are not fans of the show or me. And I don't think Hunter likes me. So no, he does. Uh, I think I've had him on the pod a bunch of times. But anyway, he did his whole thing where he tweeted and he said, only his people can reply. And I was like, <laughs> all right, well, I guess that's the end of our relationship. Yeah. There we go. All right, listen, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for hanging I out, I really man. appreciate it. And just, you know what? It's just, thank you for coming on the show, just because I'm lonely. And it, aside from the fact that people get benefits- This is just benefits, like us, two-person room on Clubhouse, but instead- This would literally be us platform. hanging out with Bill Lee, yeah. having drinks in the lobby of the St. Regis, like we did, whatever, 10, yeah. 15 years ago when we were hanging out. Like- this is what I miss most about this shelter in place is just the ability to hang out and just chew the fat, right? Yeah. I mean, it's well, just so we were sucks. able to do this with uh, us and our, you know, 100,000 friends on the internet. 200,000 will hear this episode. 200,000, yeah, sorry. For sure. <laughs> Many hundreds of thousands of people. Many hundreds of thousands. All right, everybody, uh, follow Gary Tang. Subscribe, please. Go subscribe to his YouTube, youtube.com slash Gary Tang, G-A-R-R-Y-T-A-N. He's one of the greats and it's great, you know, I just... You've always been one of the most considered and smartest folks I've met in the industry, and it's just great to see you winning. I like to see good people win, you know? It's a nice feeling. All right, Gary, continued success, and we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye.